Hello, hello. Uh, I am not sure in what capacity, if any, uh, I'm going to end up releasing this. Um, but I, I kind of wanted to do this more for myself than anything else, just as a refresher and just as kind of a, a counterpiece to uh, get ready for uh, a discussion on Trotsky's The Revolution Betrayed with Rob from Dumb and Awful. Um, and and listening to 10 hours of Rob read Trotsky uh, did immeasurable psychic damage to me. Uh, I, I kid, I kid. That was, it was, it was, it's always good. Always, always good to get more theory in, to get more education in. Um, you just have to be careful to contextualize it and make sure we know kind of what we're dealing with and why we're dealing with it. Um, in that regard, I decided I wanted to go back uh, to another perspective on what was going on around the same time in the Soviet Union, more so a little bit before this time, right to the time when Trotsky actually got uh, put on trial and all of that kind of stuff. Um and the best work I had read to this point that I hadn't touched on, and it's been, good God, it's been a couple of years now, um, was Harry Haywood's autobiography, Black Bolshevik. Um, and there is a whole chapter within Black Bolshevik called Trotsky's Day in Court. Uh, and I thought that that would be an interesting counter read, um, to give another perspective on, on what Trotsky is saying and, and kind of where the, the, what the status of Trotsky and his thought was in the Soviet Union, um, before he got expelled. Um, and then eventually we all know Ice picked, uh, in the back of the head. A, a decision to be sure. A decision to be sure. Um, but that being said, I'm just going to launch right into it and try and keep this as brief as possible. Uh, and we will start with Chapter 6 of Black Bolshevik, Trotsky's Day in Court. Apart from our academic courses, we received... Oh, okay. Important here. The context for where we're at right now. Uh, Harry Haywood is a black communist in America. Uh, he he had done a bunch of odd jobs. He had kind of he had been uh, in World War One, um, served served on the American side of World War One, um, but had started developing, uh, joining the Young Communist League, joining other organizations um, in America, and was selected to head over to Kutva over in uh, over in Russia uh, in the Soviet Union at the time. Uh, and, and so this is, this is his telling of his time there, of, of his, of his, you know, time in the Soviet Union while he was a, a student there, what he saw, what he encountered. Uh, and this specifically is all around the, the, the Trotsky situation. So apart from our co- academic courses, we received our first tutelage in Leninism in the history of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union in the heat of the inter-party struggle then raging between Trotsky and the majority of the Central Committee led by Stalin. We Kutva students were not simply bystanders, but were active participants in the struggle. Most of the students and all of our group from the U.S. were ardent supporters of Stalin and the Central Committee majority. It had not always been thus. Otto, uh, Otto told me that in 1924, a year before he arrived, a majority of the students in the school had been supporters of Trotsky. Trotsky was making a play for the party youth in opposition to the older Bolshevik stalwarts. With this, with his usual demagoguery, he claimed that the old leadership was betraying the revolution. He wrote a whole book about it, uh, and he embarked on a course of Thermidori and had embarked on a course of Thermidorian reaction. Again, words that we've heard from Trotsky before. In this situation, he said, students and youth were the party's truest barometer. But by the time the black American students arrived, the temporary attraction to Trotsky had been reversed. The issues involved in the struggle with Trotsky were discussed in the school. They involved the destiny of socialism in the Soviet Union. 
which way were the Soviet people to go? What was to be the direction of their economic development? Was it possible to build a socialist economic system? These questions were not only theoretical ones, but were issues of life and death. The economic life of the country would not stand still and wait while they were being debated. The Soviet working class under the leadership of Lenin and the Bolsheviks had vanquished capitalism over one-sixth of the globe, shattered its economic power, expropriated the capitalists and landlords, converted the factories, railroads, and banks into public property, and was beginning to build a state-owned socialist industry. Again, keyword there, beginning to build. Beginning to build. This was all in progress. The Soviet government had begun to apply Lenin's cooperative plans in agriculture and begun to fully develop a socialist economic system. This colossal task had to be undertaken by the workers in alliance with the masses of working peasantry. From the October Revolution through 1921, the economic system was characterized by war communism. Basic industry was nationalized, and all questions were subordinated to the one of the meeting of meeting the military needs and get engendered by the civil war and the intervention of the capitalist countries. But by 1921, the foreign powers who had attempted to overthrow the Soviets had largely been driven from Russia's borders. It was then necessary to orient the economy towards a peacetime situation. The NEP, New Economic Policy, formulated at the 10th Party Congress in 1921, was the policy designed to guide the transition from war communism to the building of socialism. It replaced a system of surplus appropriation with a tax in kind, which would be less of a burden on the peasantry. The NEP was a temporary retreat from socialist forms. Smaller industries were leased to private capital to run. Peasants were allowed to sell their agricultural surplus on the free markets. Central control over much of the economy was lessened. All of this was necessary to have the economy function on a peacetime basis. It was a measure designed to restore the exchange of commodities between city and country, which had been so greatly disrupted by the Civil War and intervention. It was a temporary retreat from the attack on all remnants of capitalism, a time for the socialist state to stabilize its base area, to gather strength for another advance. A year later, at the 11th Party Congress, Lenin declared that the retreat was ended and called on the party to prepare for an offensive on private capital. Lenin was incapacitated by a series of strokes in 1923 and could no longer participate in the active leadership of the party. It was precisely at this time, taking advantage of Lenin's absence, that Trotsky made his bid for leadership in the party. Trotsky had consistently opposed the NEP and its main engineer, Lenin, attacking the measures designed to appease the peasantry and maintain the coalition between the peasants and the workers. From late 1922 on, Trotsky made a direct attack on the whole Leninist theory of revolution and the dictatorship of the proletariat. He denied the possibility and necessity of building socialism in one country, and instead characterized that theory as an abandonment of Marxist principles and a betrayal of the revolutionary movement. He postulated his own theory of permanent revolution and contended that a genuine advance of socialism in the USSR would become possible only as a result of a socialist victory in the other industrially developed states. While throwing around a good deal of leftist-sounding rhetoric, Trotsky's theories were thoroughly defeatist and class collaborationist. For instance, in the postscript to Program for Peace, written in 1922, he contended that as long as the bourgeoisie remains in power in the other European countries, we shall be compelled in our struggle against economic isolation to strive for agreement with the capitalist world. At the same time, it may be said with certainty that these agreements may at best help us to mitigate some of the economic ills, to take one or another step forward, but real progress of a socialist economy in Russia will become possible only after the victory of the proletariat in the major European countries. At the base of this defeatism was Trotsky's view that the peasantry would be hostile to socialism since the proletariat would have to make extremely deep inroads not only into feudal, but also into bourgeois property relations. 
Thus, Trotsky contended that the working class would come into hostile collision not only with all the bourgeois groupings which supported the proletariat during the first stages of its revolutionary struggle, but also with the broad masses of the peasantry with, with, with whose assistance it came into power. The contradictions in the position of a workers' government in a backward country with an overwhelmingly peasant co- co- population could be solved only in the arena of the world proletarian revolution. Therefore, it would not be possible to build socialism in a backward peasant country like Russia. The mass of peasants would exhaust their revolutionary potential even before the revolution had completed its bourgeois democratic tasks. The breakup of the feudal landed estates and the redistribution of land among the peasantry? This line, which underestimated the role of the peasantry, had been put forward by Trotsky as early as 1915 in his article, The Struggle for Power. There he claimed that imperialism was causing the revolutionary role of the peasantry to decline and downgraded the importance of the slogan, confiscate the landed estates. As it was pointed out in our classes, Trotsky portrayed the peasantry as an undifferentiated mass. He made no distinction between the masses of peasants who worked their own land, the mushiks, musics, we remember that from Revolution Betrayed, the old musics, and the exploiting strata who hired labor, the kulaks. His conclusions openly contradicted the strategy of the Bolsheviks, developed by Lenin, of building the worker-peasant alliance as the basis for the dictatorship of the proletariat. Further, they were at complete variance with any realistic or social analysis. Trotsky's entire position reflected a lack of faith in the strength of resources of the Soviet people, the vast majority of whom were peasants. Since it denied the revolutionary potential of the peasantry, the success of the revolution could not come from internal forces, but had to depend on the success of proletarian revolutions in the advanced nations of Western Europe. In the absence of such revolutions, the revolutionary process within the Soviet Union itself would have to be held in abeyance, and the proletariat, which had seized power with the help of the peasantry, would have to hold the state power in conflict with all other classes. Behind Trotsky's revolutionary rhetoric was a simplistic social democratic view which regarded the class struggle for socialism as solely labor against capital. The concept of class struggle did not regard the struggle of peasant against landlord or peasant against the czar as a constituent part of the struggle for socialism. This was reflected as early in 1905 in Trotsky's slogan, No Czar But a Worker's Government, which as Stalin had said was the slogan of revolution without the peasantry. Given the state of the revolutionary forces at the time, the position was dangerously defeatist. For instance, 1923 marked a period of recession for the revolutionary wave in Europe. It was a year of defeat for communist movements in Germany, Italy, Poland, and Bulgaria. What then, Stalin asked, is left for our revolution? Shall it vegetate in its own contradictions and rot away while waiting for the world revolution? To that question, Trotsky had no answer. Stalin's reply was to build socialism in the Soviet Union. The Soviet working class, allied with the peasantry, had vanquished its own bourgeoisie politically and was fully capable of doing the job economically and building up a socialist society. Stalin's position did not mean the isolation of the Soviet Union. The danger of capitalist restoration still existed and would exist until the advent of classless society. The Soviet people understood that they could not destroy the external danger by their own efforts, that it could only be finally destroyed as a result of a victorious revolution in at least several of the countries of the West. The triumph of socialism in the Soviet Union could not be final as long as the external danger existed. Therefore, the success of revolutionary forces in the capitalist West was a vital concern of the Soviet people. 
Trotsky's scheme of permanent revolution downgraded not only the peasantry as a revolutionary force, but also the national liberation movement of the oppressed peoples within the old Tsarist Empire. Thus, in the struggle for power, he wrote that imperialism does not contrapose the bourgeois nation to the old regime, but the proletariat to the bourgeois nation. While Trotsky de-emphasized the national colonial question in the epoch of imperialism, Lenin, on the other hand, stressed its new importance. Imperialism, said Lenin, means the progressively mounting oppression of the nation of the world by a handful of great powers. It means a period of wars between the latter to extend and consolidate the oppression of the nations. It was not until some time later that I was able to fully grasp the implication of Trotsky's concept of permanent revolution on the international scene. The most dramatic example was in Spain during the Spanish Civil War, 1936-39. to The Trotskyist organization had infiltrated the anarchist movement in Catalonia and incited revolt against the loyalist government under the slogans of Socialist Republic and Workers' Government. The loyalist government, headed by Juan Negrin, a liberal Republican, was a coalition of all Democratic parties. It included socialists, communists, liberal Republicans, and anarchists, all in alliance against the fascist counter-revolution led by Franco and backed by Hitler and Mussolini. The attempted coup against the loyalist government was typical of the Trotskyist attempts to short-circuit the bourgeois democratic stage of the revolutionary progress. The result was a civil war within a civil war, and had their strategy succeeded, it would have split the democratic coalition, effectively giving aid to the fascists. In the United States, I was to witness how Trotsky's purist concept of class struggle led logically to the denial of of the struggle for black liberation as a special feature of the class struggle, revolutionary in its own right. As a result, American Trotskyists found themselves isolated from the movement during the great upsurge of the 30s, but all of this was to become later. At the time I was at Kutva, Trotskyism had not yet emerged as an important tendency on the international scene. I did not foresee its future role as a disruptive force on the fringes of the international revolutionary movement. At that point, I wasn't clear myself on a number of these theoretical questions. It was somewhat later when my understanding of the national and colonial question, particularly the Afro-American question, deepened that the implications of Trotsky's theory of permanent revolution became fully obvious to me. We students felt that Trotsky's position denigrated the achievement of the Soviet Revolution. We didn't like his continual harping about Russia's backwardness and its inability to build socialism, or his theory of permanent revolution. The Soviet Union was an inspiration for all of us, a view confirmed by our experience in the country. Everything we could see defied Trotsky's logic. I'm going to stop briefly there. This is the constant thing that I have when I, when I am... My opposition to Trotsky is... Real life contradicts what Trotsky thinks almost at every single fucking turn. The people don't agree with what he says. The masses are not on his side. He is constantly trying to lead this fringe, isolated group, but he tries to couch it in such terms that that, that he's the smartest guy in the room and therefore you should all follow him. And that's fucking not how revolution is going to go. It, it's not going to work. It may start. Uh, you, you may be able to spark isolated incidences with that. You may be able to get off the ground with that, but it's not going to work if you can't get the people on your side. And and we'll continue that further as we go here. His writings were readily available throughout the school, and the issues of the struggle were constantly on the agenda in our collective. These were discussed in our classes as they were in factories, schools, and peasant organizations throughout the country. Another brief stop. This whole oh my god, thought crime and everything shut down and you can't think other than the way they want you to think. No. No, his writings were readily available throughout the school. People discussed them. It was it was a thing. Um, 
About once a month, the collective world, the collective would meet and a report would be given by party representatives, sometimes local, sometimes from the rayon region of the city and Moscow district, and sometimes from the central committee itself. They would report on the later de- latest developments of the inter-party struggle, Trotsky's and Lenin's view on the question of the peasantry, the NEP, how it had proved its usefulness, and how it was now being phased out. Trotsky's position on war communism and party rules, the dictatorship of the proletariat, and whether it could be dictatorship in alliance with the peasantry or one over the peasantry. An open discussion would be held after the report. By that time, the Trotskyists at Kutva had dwindled to a small group of bitter enders. The struggle raged over a period of five years, 1922 to 27, during which time the Trotsky bloc had access to the press and Trotsky's works were widely circulated for everyone to read. Trotsky was not defeated by bureaucratic decisions or Stalin's control of the party apparatus, as his partisans and Trotskyite historians claim. He had his day in court and finally lost because his whole position flew in the face of world and Soviet reality. He was doomed to defeat because his views were incorrect and failed to conform to objective conditions as well as the needs and interests of the Soviet people. It was my great misfortune to be out of the dormitory when the black students were invited to attend a session of the seventh plenum of the executive committee of the Communist International, then meeting in the Kremlin in the late fall of 1926. I was out in the street at the time and couldn't be found, so they went without me. I missed a historic occasion, my only chance to have seen Trotsky in action. I was bitterly disappointed. When I arrived back at the dormitory, Sakharov, my Indian friend, told me where they had gone. Returning in the early hours of the morning, they found me waiting for them. They described the session and the stellar performance of Trotsky. Stalin made the report for the Russian delegation. Trotsky then asked for two hours to defend his position. He was given one. He spoke in Russian and then personally translated and delivered his speech in German and then in French. In all, he held the floor for about three hours. Otto said it was the greatest display of oratory he had ever heard. But despite this, Trotsky and his allies, Zinoviev and Kamenev, suffered a resounding defeat, obtaining only two votes out of the whole body. The delegates from outside the Soviet Union didn't accept Trotsky's view that socialism in one country was a betrayal of the revolution. Repeating that, the delegates from outside the Soviet Union didn't accept Trotsky's view that socialism in one country was a betrayal of the revolution. On the contrary, the success in the Soviet Union in building socialism was an inspiration to the international revolution. Otto told me that this point was made again and again in the course of discussion. Ercolai Togaletti, the young leader of the Italian party, summed it up well a few days later when he defended the achievements of the Russian, Rep- part, the Rev- Russian party and the revolution as the strongest impetus for the revolutionary forces of the world. The American party united across factional lines in support of Stalin. The Trotsky opposition, already defeated within the Soviet Union, was now shattered internationally. From there on out, it was downhill from Trotsky. I witnessed Trotsky's opposition bloc degenerate from an unprincipled faction within the party to a counter-revolutionary conspiracy against the party and the Soviet state. We learned of secret illegal meetings held in the Silver Woods outside Moscow, the establishment of factional printing presses, all in violation of party discipline. Their activities reached a high point during November 7th, 1927, the anniversary of the revolution. At that 10th anniversary, Trotsky's followers attempted to stage a counter-demonstration in opposition to the traditional celebration. I remember vividly the scene of our school contingent marching on its way to Red Square. As we passed the Hotel Moscow, Trotsky's leaflets were showered down on us, and orators appeared in the windows of the hotel shouting slogans of, Down with Stalin! 
They were answered with catcall and booing from the crowds in the streets below. We seized the leaselets and tore them up. This attempt to rally the people against the party was a total failure and struck no responsive chord among the masses. It was equivalent to rebellion, and the demonstration was the last overt act of the Trotskyist opposition. During the next month, Trotsky, Kamenev, and Zinoviev were expelled, along with 75 of their chief supporters. They, along with the Lesser Fry, were sent to exile in Siberia and Central Asia. Trotsky was sent to Almata in Turkestan, from where, in he in 1929, he was allowed to go abroad, first to Turkey and eventually to Mexico. Later, many of Trotsky's followers criticized themselves and were accepted back into the party. But among them was a hardcore of bitter enders who criticized themselves publicly only in order to continue the struggle against Stalin's leadership from within the party. Their bitterness fed on itself, and they emerged later in the 30s as part of a conspiracy which wound up on the side of Nazi Germany. Throughout this whole struggle, we black students at the school had been ardent supporters of the position of Stalin and the Central Committee. Most were certainly Stalinists whose policies we saw as the continuation of Lenin's. Today, those today who use the term Stalinist as an epithet evade the real question. That is, were Stalin and the Central Committee correct? I believe history has proven that they were correct. And that is going to be the end of that particular section of reading. There is more to the particular chapter, but it is all uh, not related to Trotsky, so we're not going to get into it. Um, yeah, that is that is the uh, a retelling of of Harry Haywood's experiences in in the Soviet Union during this period of interparty conflict and the eventual expulsion of Trotsky and what that meant. Um, Again, this is one person's lived experience. This is not gospel necessarily by any stretch of the imagination. I don't take it as a definitive gotcha moment or something like that. But I do think it is important to have a another side and some more context for how this kind of stuff was actually received by the Soviet people, um, what the international community thought of it, and almost universally it seems to be in opposition to Trotsky. Um I firmly lean on the side that that was not some master manipulation from Stalin who had everyone under his thumb and, and magically made everyone hate Trotsky. Again, two people voted for Trotsky in the hearing, um, but the vast majority of people rejected Trotsky's views, um, rejected his ideas, and rejected the concept that socialism in one country was somehow a betrayal of the revolution. Uh, that being said, this has been it for Nathan's isolated reading of, of black Bolshevik. Uh, thank you. And I will talk to you again soon.